0: trip through the movies. I'm John Blinn.
1: And I'm Brianna McCann.
0: This week we're going to be talking about, uh, well actually before we dive into that, I want to ask you, Brianna McCann, I want to ask you two important questions uh, for this week's episode. Number one, how are you? How, how was the, this past week?
1: It was okay. A little crazy, but overall pretty good. How about you, John?
0: I can't complain too much. Um, I, I, I had a hard time getting through this week after the the bummer of last week, which was, was which was Godzilla. Um, but. You know, overall, we made the rebound. We got back with a nice, uh, a nice fresh movie, something lighthearted, something that's really gonna, really gonna freshen up the week. You know what I mean? Add some spice. Not so much of a Debbie Downer this week. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking about it.
1: Me too. This is a good one.
0: The second question that I have for you is, is nothing sacred?
1: <laughs> the movie would suggest not. <laughs>
0: And if that doesn't give it away, uh, the movie we're talking about this week is Nothing Sacred, one of Brianna's personal favorites, from what I've read on Twitter.
1: Yes. So uh, whenever you know, I started to watch this last night. You know, we're uh, appeasing the fans. You know, tweeting that hashtag now. Watching um, a picture of the fact I'm starting this movie to talk to John about it, and I did describe it as a personal favorite. This was my pick for this week. Um, this movie is. It's a it's a screwball comedy, it's a dark comedy. Every time I watch it, I get something new from it.
0: I got to say when I watched it, I I thought at the end of the movie, um I was like this was so 1930s. Like there were so many lines that were just sort of like, "Oh, why, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. that sort of like campy 1930s, oh why I oughta energy." Mm-hmm. And obviously that line is never said, but you know what I mean? <laughs> like the whole movie sort of captures that energy and, and it's really fun. Um Obviously, it's a, it's a period of its time. You can tell it's very 1930s of points. Uh, but, man, it's fun. It's fun when it's not like, you know, 1930s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but with that being said, you mentioned it's a personal favorite. So I want to ask, how did you first uh, come upon this movie?
1: Sure. So I first watched this movie probably about two years ago now. And I had just seen that it was going to be on on TCM. And Frederick March is within, like, my top ten favorite actors. I really love the guy. So I said, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch this. And I watched it, and it just took me by the heart, like, the first time that I watched it. I, I still don't really know what it was, but I just loved it. And I've watched it, you know, including last night, two more times since then. And, and every time, it just strikes me as such a unique film in the sense that, you know, it has this, this concept that is kind of serious. Like you said at the beginning, it basically asks, is nothing sacred? The answer ends up being no, but it's so funny despite being so cynical.
0: Yeah, it really is. And that was one thing that I thought. I was like, man, this was the first time that I've seen where, you know, I, I remember I took a class a few years back and it sort of talked about the history of sitcom televisions, which earlier sitcoms have a very similar style, a very similar sense of humor, if you will, that I feel earlier movies have. Uh, with TV just catching up to movies later on, and they talked about Seinfeld, and obviously I, it was you could sort of see this uh, in other sitcoms, but they they really sort of isolated Seinfeld, and this they were like this was the first sitcom where the main characters were all just sort of terrible people, and people loved it, and I wouldn't say the people in Nothing Sacred are terrible people. But, man, they are they are cynical characters. Yeah,
1: they, they toe the line on being terrible people sometimes.
0: <laughs> they, they're just walking the fine edge. They, they really want to be terrible people, but at the same time, they're like, ah, I'd kind of feel bad if I was a terrible person, right. so I'm not going <laughs> to. And, uh, yeah, overall, it, it works. And that was one thing I was thinking, and I was like, man, its I feel like I haven't watched a whole lot of movies from the 30s. I've seen some silent stuff from the 20s uh, and – Really, that's the whole reason that you and I have started this and you've you've sort of led me to the decades of, I think the earliest movies that I was watching before you and I started talking classic movies was like maybe the 60s. So we're sort of filling the gap for me personally. And yeah, I was just thinking like compared to the silent movies that we saw in the Buster Keaton style era and stuff that we've seen, Dr. Caligari, things like that. Dr. Caligari, obviously fake character, um, but not a good guy, but it works because he's an antagonist. This is really the first time that I've noticed. Um, you see, sort of human and not perfect hero characters in these movies. And I may be wrong. There, are, I'm sure there are movies before that where where you have some protagonists that aren't uh, the definition of perfect.
1: That is a great point. You know that this is one of the you know one of the big screwball comedy movies. And that's something that you see a lot in this, you know, fast paced screwball comedy is it's not necessarily focused on creating these characters that are, you know, super likable or things like that. It's trying to create characters that are kind of crazy and zany enough that you're engaged whenever they're talking like a mile a minute and doing just these crazy things. And again, Nothing Sacred is such a great example of that because you have Carol Lombard giving like a million percent and she's killing it. And Frederick March who is so good in this cynical like cynical reporter role that like both of them kind of doing iffy things works out very well.
0: Right, and that was one thing I also wanted to add is like despite their shady characteristics at points, you never find yourself not really rooting for them. You always hope that in the end it's going to be all right. Exactly. And to give you some context as to what this movie's about and sort of what these characters that we've discussed are going to find themselves in, uh, we'll read the letterbox summary, as we like to do. See the big fight. <laughs> which, okay, okay, never mind. I, I, in retrospect, I do understand why that's, why that's the tagline there. Um, <laughs> when a small-town girl is diagnosed with a rare deadly disease, an ambitious newspaper man turns her into a national heroine. And... I think that the letterbox summary doesn't give it justice here, so I think we should add a little bit more. I will say this rare deadly disease turns out to not be real as our newspaper man uh, meets Carol Lombard, Lombard. sorry, And she still goes anyway to become sort of the centerpiece of sorrow for New York City. And just before he goes to meet this woman, our newspaper man, had been conned before for a story which is putting him in a tough position in his career so you can sort of see where this is going you have the woman who wants to enjoy the luxuries of new york city for the first time and a newspaper man who's just trying not to get conned again but also kind of feeding into the sob story that he's going to make some money off of and it's going to save his career so as you can see that sort of highlights what we were talking about earlier but man is it funny and the mastermind behind the movie, the director that we're talking about, well, man, I'll just let Brianna tell you.
1: <laughs> William Wellman is has so many like interesting pieces to his his life and his you know life as a director, especially, and he's one he's one of those directors that you look at and you're like, oh my, oh my God, he had so many movies that like he made that were really good. So he was born February 29th, 1896. He began his career as an actor and then went on to direct over 80 films. He's mostly known for crimes or adventure movies, um, but he also directed several well-regarded satirical comedies, like Nothing Sacred. Probably his, his biggest claim to fame is in 1927, Wellman directed the movie Wings, which became the first ever Best Picture winner at the first Academy Awards ceremony. Um, If you haven't seen Wings, watch it. Like, it's incredible. But something really fascinating about this is the fact that that's a movie about pilots in World War I. And William Wellman was actually a pilot in World War I. Um, So he knows a lot about that, obviously, and is able to make this movie that's incredibly realistic. And so that's something that kind of influences him, and you'll see he makes a lot more of those kinds of movies. But after the war... He continues to be a pilot, and what's interesting is he used the polo field of, you know, the silent film megastar Douglas Fairbanks. He used his polo field as a landing strip, and then Douglas Fairbanks was like, hey, dude, you're pretty cool. Let me get you a job in the movies. So William Wellman starts out as an actor, but really hates that ends up working behind the scenes and then eventually uh, makes his credited directorial debut in 1923 with two films that came out on the same day actually the man who won and secondhand love so he continues to direct what what they refer to as low budget horse opera films which i love that that's hilarious but basically just very melodramatic like western kinds of things Um, but then his his career really takes off whenever he's hired by paramount in 1927 to make wings which goes on to be the first best picture winner and just as a final note on wellman again his his filmography is just incredible so just to run through a couple of these other ones you have the public enemy from 1931 just the quintessential james cagney gangster film a star is born also from 1937 also with frederick march and also in technicolor but we'll come back to that The Oxbow Incident in 1943, The Story of G.I. Joe in 1945, Battleground 1949, you are hard-pressed to find another director with a filmography with that many hard hitters in it.
0: And what's interesting about Wellman is the fact that he's got such a diverse taste in this huge discography, and really I think that that stands out a lot because you have directors that are are known for a certain style of of movies, and, and like... They, they all have a, a similar heart. And I haven't seen any of Wellman's other movies, um, but is there – do the emotions of his movies change, or is it sort of like – Bust, with Buster Keaton, for example, right? Obviously, he covers very different genres in, in his movies. Like you have a sort of a lighthearted kind of mystery deal with Sherlock Jr., and then you have this war epic with the general – but at the end of the day, they're all still these slapstick sort of lighthearted movies. Is that similar for Wellman or is he sort of, does he have a key element that he sticks to or is he able to really change it up when he changes genres?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. If I had to kind of pick, you know, one central conceit of a lot of Wellman's films, at least of the of the ones that I've listed here, is that whether it is in a comedy setting or it is in a drama setting, he is really, really good at portraying human emotion and interplay between people so you know you see the public enemy from 1931 james cagney is a gangster but with a lot of depth a star is born 1937 he pulls this wellman pulls this performance out of frederick march that ends up winning an oscar but like it's absolutely incredible and he gives this unlikable character a lot of depth in battleground he follows Battleground is basically a Band of Brothers before its time. So he follows a group of paratroopers in the 101st Airborne. And it, again, is this human interplay between people. And so while it's not in the comedic sense that you see in Nothing Sacred, he's really, really good at getting to the heart of people and what motivates them.
0: That's interesting. I, and again, like I said, never seen any of his work up until now. So uh, one thing, again, I'm going to ask you. We're going to play on sort of like a, a an expert and, and a learner perspective here. Um he, he tells the story of A Star is Born, a story that we have seen time and time again pop up in cinema history, and one that still seems to really resonate with audiences each time that it's released. Now, is this because of his his take on it? I believe, I know there were like three or four versions of this. Was this the first one?
1: Yes. Okay. So, <clears throat> William Wellman's version of A Star is Born from 1937 is the first version under that name there was a movie with a similar theme a couple years earlier called what price hollywood but this movie is it's the first a star is born you know all the other films will go on to use basically the same names as the characters the same kind of plot even if they make little adaptations um so this really starts that trend
0: now with that being said i i I don't want to dive too much into this movie but i I recently had an instance in my apartment where I, i came back home from an outing, and uh, my, my roommate and his girlfriend were watching the most recent iteration of A Star is Born, and his girlfriend is just in tears, utterly destroyed, and this wasn't the first time that I had heard that, man, that story breaks hearts. Now, I have to wonder, do you think that's because of the original story, or did Wellman sort of set up that, as you mentioned, he's very good with human emotions, did he set up that style that people have been trying to replicate, or trying to... You know, do again since? Or is that just the story itself? Is it Wellman or the story itself?
1: I definitely think it's a combination of the two because if you look at the four different instances of a star is born, so the first with Frederick March and Janet Gaynor, that movie is genuinely devastating. And a lot of that comes from the fact that Wellman's behind the camera. It's his story, he's able to pull that out of him. You go to the version from the early 50s with Judy Garland and James Mason. Again, that one is devastating, and it's a huge production. You have George Cukor directing that, who is, again, incredible at pulling out human emotion. You have a version in the 70s with Barbra Streisand and Chris Christopherson that you hear less about. I haven't personally seen that one, again, because that doesn't typically fall in the the, the top ones that people talk about. And then you have uh, the one with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga that got a lot of acclaim. It'll be curious to see... You know, if that one ends up being listed among the best of them in a couple years or so and looking back on it. But from watching that one, I thought that they also captured the emotion well. So I think it kind of depends who you have in the movie, who you have behind the camera. Um, and we see that with Wellman, that he's really good at that in A Star is Born, and then obviously in Nothing Sacred as well.
0: One more question regarding Wellman. Uh, I have always been a fan of the Band of Brothers miniseries. However, it's one of those series that I haven't really sat down and watched straight through all the way. It's something that's been on the History Channel during various holidays that I've sat down and watched with my dad. And I remember from the time that I was young, you know, obviously old enough to watch Band of Brothers, which can be a point very graphic, uh, but being old enough to watch it and sitting down with my dad, I remember thinking this is some of the best war... I don't want to say entertainment because it's a poor word to Mm -hmm. use along with war, but this is some of the best like World War II media that I've ever seen. Like, this is fantastic. And later on in life, I did buy the Band of Brothers books, I, or singular book. I read that. And, you know, I've sort of seen all of Band of Brothers at various years, you know what I mean? It's just right. piecing it together. Yeah. And I've read the book. So I'm very curious. Um, are there any stylistic, decisions maybe directing choices anything like that that you've seen maybe pulled directly from Wellman's work in the band of brother work you made that comparison so I had to ask
1: yeah that is a really really good question John so definitely in just in general in the movie Wings uh, Wellman kind of sets the standard for war movies to come after that because he has these incredibly filmed dog fights with planes and things like that and he really kind of starts, you know, setting that standard for, you know, realism in war films. And the movie uh, Battleground from 1949 follows a group of soldiers in the 101st Airborne. So, again, it, it plays into that, you know, it's the same crew as Band of Brothers.
0: They're, they're, um, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I just got to say, they're some of the coolest people in history. Exactly. They're, there were less people on Earth that are as badass as, that, as, as those paratroopers.
1: Completely agreed. They're incredible <laughs> people. And, you know— you have to say, Wellman making a movie about them that soon after the war, 1949 obviously sets the tone for, you know, other people to be interested in them. Stephen Ambrose then writing the Band of Brothers book, us you know, getting that magnificent miniseries. Wellman really kind of sets the tone for all of that.
0: With that being said, I don't mean uh, I don't mean that my, my description of them to be tacky, but I feel like when you look at them, their story, what they did. Everything about them fits that description perfectly. You know what? Like, I, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want that to come off as tacky, but literally, when I think that, I'm like, man, that's that's the perfect word to describe those guys. Absolutely. They were amazing. Um, but yeah, if there's anything else you'd like to conclude with, Wellman, feel free. If not, I'll just hop into our star roles over here.
1: Yeah, I think we're good to go. All
0: right, so we're gonna start with Carol Lombard, who plays the role of our radium poisoning s- victim. Um, who is not actually a victim, and man, does she kill it! And when you look at her life, you really aren't surprised when when you learn a little bit more about her. So she is referred to as the queen of screwball comedy in Hollywood, and considered also later on in life at, during her death, which is tragic, the first Hollywood casualty of World War II. So this is a this is a really interesting story from start to finish with with Carol Lombard here. She was described as a free-spirited tomboy by her biographer Wes Gehring, which I can't think of a better way, and I've only seen one of her movies, but based off of what I've seen, I cannot think of a better way to describe her. She really brings that energy of that description to the screen in Nothing Sacred. Uh, Moving on, her performance as that free-spirited tomboy really does her justice as she's nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress through her time in Nothing Sacred. She later wins that Academy Award in My Man Godfrey, which I haven't seen yet, but she does get that Academy Award at one point. She was born into a wealthy family in Fort Wayne, Indiana, but was raised by a single mother in Los Angeles. And I have a feeling anyone who gets raised by a single mother in Los Angeles is bound for success. Uh, <laughs> I I know that's a weird thing to say, but single mothers are going to raise you tough. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's never an instance of a single mother not raising tough kids and successful kids. You, you see that a lot. You know, if you look at a a stereotypical uh, rags to riches story in the United States, and granted, she was born into a wealthy family, so it doesn't match this perfectly. But anytime you see that, there's typically a single mother involved. And uh, just one thing I, I wanted to toss in there. And. As I mentioned, she's sort of born to be successful. Her screen debut was in A Perfect Crime in 1921 at the young age of 12. So really, that success starts right off the bat for her. If I was in a movie at age 12, uh, I don't think I would have done very good. So (laughs) props to Carol Lombard there. She later signs a contract with Fox at the age of... Oh, I lost the age. Oh, no, it is at the age of 12. So she she signs with Fox right off that. Um, and that lasts up until 1926. She spent a lot of times, a lot of movies. She spent a lot of time playing roles in Westerns, which she said she hated. Um, she didn't like sitting by and yelling for the hero in the movie. And she's very progressive for women in Hollywood. If, if I do say myself, like based off of the uh, little bit of the time period that I know, um she she really seems to be doing a lot for women in hollywood and i don't know if you can comment on that or not
1: yeah she definitely is in terms of just being you know progressive and wanting to play these roles where you know she's in control and just kind of the way that she conducts herself as you know the woman that she wants to be absolutely
0: and she isn't really in control up until she gets out of her deal with fox and she gets out of that, as I mentioned, in 1926. And thank God, because they treated her rather poorly, the studio made her change her original name of Jane Alice Peters to Carol Lombard. The fact that a studio is strong enough to make you change your name and, like, you're willing to do that for success is one thing, but the fact that the studio even has the guts to demand that is an entirely different thing. So not not good on you, Fox. Also... There is heavy speculation that they removed her from their studio due to a facial scar that she received from a car accident. A piece of the windshield of the car that she was in caused a a, a scar, which for the rest of her career, she goes out of her way to cover up with makeup and different various lighting used in these movies. And uh, shame on Fox again, if if that is true. um, But Lombard said that she's pretty sure that was the the reason for her being cut before her time ends with Fox, though, she, you sort of start to see the beginnings of what she's going to become in a movie called... I lost my spot. Oh! In a movie called Marriage in Transit. There we go. And she was just praised for her charm by critics there. And when you watch Nothing Sacred, she really just does have like this energetic charm to her. Uh, and it's so different from the previous actors that we've talked about because you oftentimes see a sort of flattering charm you know it's not very electric as hers feels it's just sort of there uh, it's just sort of like a like if he, he bought you a drink at a bar kind of deal like you're like oh my god how charming she's not like that and that doesn't take away from that definition of charm but she's charming in a completely different way and that's what really leads to her success so originally she was not sold on slapstick comedies despite the fact that you know this ends up being what she is known for but during her time at Senate Bathing Beauties, which is where she goes after Fox, and I think I'm pronouncing that right, it's, it's spelled S-E-N-N-E-T-T, yep. uh, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty <laughs> sure I had that right. Yep. Um, she learned that she loved the genre and considered it to be the turning point of her career. They had her star in a ton of short films that really sort of capture this definition of how we know her today. In 1930, she takes a contract with Paramount and leaves Senate, And this is where she really starts to shine. So she finds her groove with Senate. Paramount gives her the platform, and she takes off. She finds success in screwball comedies, particularly in 1934 and 1935. That's when it seemed to be the most for her. And later on, that leads us to Nothing Sacred in 1937, so just a year or two later. And she goes on just rocking this role, rocking this genre, carrying out that electric charm, really just killing it. And she only gets a few more roles, and she's only active in Hollywood for a few more years because she does, unfortunately, die at a very young age. But before she dies, one of her later roles was with Alfred Hitchcock in Mr. and Mrs. Smith in 1941. And many people speculate that she was sort of the person who offers this— I I don't remember how they described it. I want to say it was eccentric blonde, something to those lines— that Alfred Hitchcock later uses heavily in some of his further works and they believe that that was inspired by Lombard. So if you're if you're impacting one of the greatest directors of all time you're clearly doing something that is noteworthy. And that is as I mentioned one of her last films before her unfortunate death which is really interesting in itself. So I'm going to read this pretty much in detail. But Before we dive into that, is there anything you want to comment on uh, from her career, her successes, anything like that? Because I feel like you know some stuff about her that I definitely do not as this being a personal favorite.
1: I just think, you know, it's a great point that she really was the queen of screwball comedy and has this absolutely insane energy because you see throughout her career that especially in these screwballs, whether it be Nothing Sacred, where she's with Frederick March, or 20th Century, where she's with John Barrymore, who is widely considered perhaps the best actor of all time every single time she is showing these people up and it's never in a way that is like oh you know she's so crazy like everything she does is very nuanced even if it's you know off the wall and she's consistently showing up the best actors of the day and that's something i love about her
0: she really kills it honestly and that was sort of the thing that you see you see a lot more of uh Frederick March in this movie. I mean, he takes up a large, I want to say the first 20 minutes are just him. Uh but as soon as Lombard joins the movie, she matches his energy right off the bat. And as we'll dive into in a little bit, Frederick March was no nothing to sneeze at. He was very successful on his own too. But she they I think the fight th- there is a literal fight that happens in the movie, but the fight and not that it was ill it had any ill intent. But the fight is really, man. Just who's gonna who's gonna hog the screen? Who's gonna be the one to to outshine the other? And I, I really can't answer that question because I haven't seen enough of the others work. So I want to know who is at their strongest. But man, it's it's interesting to watch. They just they play off of each other very very well. Um. So again, as I mentioned, unfortunately, we'll we'll, we'll go into this this story of her death, which is really fascinating, and there's a lot of history behind it. Uh, when the U.S. entered World War II at the end of 1941, Lombard traveled to her home state of Indiana for a war bond rally with her mother, Best, Pe- Best Peters, as I mentioned earlier, her last name was originally Peters, and Clark Gable's press agent, Otto Winkler. Now, she was married to Clark Gable at the time. Lombard raised more than $2 million in defense bonds in a single evening, so that, again, just goes to show how much America loved her. Her party had initially been scheduled to return to Los Angeles by train, but Lombard was eager to reach home more quickly and wanted to travel by air. Now, something else that I read this morning, which I'm not sure because I only read it from one source, but definitely interesting to add, part of the reason that people speculate that she wanted to return to Los Angeles so quickly was because she was under the impression that her husband was having an affair while she was away. So hopefully that's not true, but definitely something worth tossing out there. Her mother and Winkler were afraid of flying and insisted that the group follow their original travel plans. Lombard suggested that they flip a coin. They agreed and Lombard won the toss. So then they decide to fly by air. And this was an unfortunate victory because in the early morning hours of January 16, 1942, Lombard, her mother and Winkler boarded a transcontinental and Western Air Douglas DST aircraft to return to California. After refueling in Las Vegas, TWA Flight 3 took off at 7.07 p.m. and crashed into Double Up Peak near the 8,300-foot level of Potosi Mountain. I think I have that correct. They they wrecked into a mountain. I I don't know the exact name of it, but it's a mountain uh, around the California area. Uh, 32 statue miles southwest of the Las Vegas airport. So very, very close to, uh, to Las Vegas All 22 aboard, including including Lombard, her mother, and 15 U.S. Army soldiers were killed instantly. Lombard was only 33 years old. The cause of the crash was attributed to the flight's crew inability to properly navigate over the mountains surrounding Las Vegas as a precaution against the possibility of enemy Japanese bomber aircraft coming into American airspace from the Pacific. Safety beacons normally used to direct night flights had been turned off, leaving the pilot and crew of the TWA flight without visual warning of the mountains in their flight path. So really not directly World War II's fault, but also these are precautions that wouldn't have had to have been taken had it not been for World War II. So as I mentioned earlier, she is regarded as the first Hollywood casualty of World War II. Um, but the history there is insane. The coincident, the fact that, that this is all the result of a coin toss is really, really insane. Um, but yeah, so she only dies at the age of 33, really, as she's just reeling in success. And it's, it's only, we can only speculate what would have come because, man, was she doing well. And the most tragic part about this, as I mentioned, she did win an Academy Award, but this was only a month away from the Oscars. So, well, not the most tragic part, but it definitely adds to the tragedy as you have someone who's outstandingly successful not get to live to see further, further success that could have happened at that, that Oscars award. So really crazy stuff there. Really crazy. And if you had anything you'd like to add, maybe I missed some details in there. I don't know if you know.
1: No, I mean, I think you covered it. Again, it's just, you know, it's so sad that somebody like her who's shone so brightly – you know, dies so tragically and so young, but the legacy she leaves behind in her film is incredible.
0: Absolutely. She's really, uh, really able to just bring a lot of joy to people's lives. And ultimately at the end of the day, that's the most important part about being someone who's producing art and media like this. So we're going to move on now to our next actor, who's hopefully going to lighten the things back up again. (laughs) And I think he will, because he does have a lot of success and is really, really has a powerhouse collection of movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we're going to look at Frederick March, our newspaper man, and he is born August 31st, 1897 and was an American actor regarded one of Hollywood's most celebrated, versatile stars of the 1930s and 1940s. He won the Academy Award for Best Actor for Dr. Jackal and Mr. Hyde in 1931 and the Best Years of Our Lives in 1946, as well as the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Play four years ago in 1947 and long day's journey into night 1956 so the thing with frederick march is man he's successful a man he's talented and man he's very versatile looking he's winning awards on the screen he's winning awards on the stage really doing a great job but also not a whole lot about him uh stands out except for the fact that earlier in his life he attends a college uh named the ku klux klan that appears to have no connection with the National Klan organization. Uh, but obviously people saw this and they were like, hey, uh, what's going on? And he says, well, nothing. It's just the name of the college I went to. <laughs> so no reports of him being involved in the Klan in any way. But, man, what an unfortunate name for a college. That is uh, that is terrible.
1: Yeah, that seemed like a weird choice.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I'd want, you know, you know how like you go into like a – a doctor's room or whatever and they have their degree hanging up on the wall. I think if they had a degree for like, uh, I don't know, dentistry from the school of KKK, <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, you know what? Don't put your tools anywhere near my mouth. Um, I'm out of here. Yeah. See ya. I'd be a little concerned. And then they'd be like, no, no, no. It's just like, that was just the college I went to. i like, mm,
1: I don't know. Right. Like, <laughs> why? Why did you choose that school? <laughs> uh.
0: However, he... <laughs> He does uh, He does some other things besides acting earlier on in his life after he gets out of college. He serves in the United States Army during World War I as an artillery lieutenant, and he began a career as a banker, but that obviously, as we see, does not last very long as he soon takes to Broadway in 1926, and by the end of the decade, he signed a, co- a film contract with Paramount Pictures, a big name that we've seen uh, several times throughout this podcast already. So... I just want to sort of go through, there's really there's really not a lot. After that point, it's just success for him. He just does very well. There's really no explanation to it. There's really no build. He just does pretty well. And I want to touch upon a couple of the movies, um, one of which we talked about earlier, Star is Born. Huge, huge, still impacted today, still done today. Story that many, many people know and love. He was the lead role in that. He also plays a role in Les Miserables, or Les Mis, if you would. Um, so again... Huge! Anytime you're in Les Mis and you're a professional, you're doing pretty well for yourself because man, that is a tough show, and man, is it wildly loved. Along with this, uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde alone—that one—if he's known for anything else, it's got to be that movie. Because if you've ever watched the movie, and I've never seen it, have you seen it?
1: I have. Okay. Yes.
0: I remember, and I was talking to you with, about the sh- or before the show about this. He he does this performance where where he's sort of transforming in, into his alter ego. And I just saw this on a TCM social media page. And he contorts his face in such a graphic way where I'm like, oh, I'm scared, which is the point. Um, but there's no special effects. It's just the way he sort of – he makes his face look like the Joker. That's what it makes me think of from Batman. And it is uh, – it's impressive. I, can't do it with, I couldn't do it with my face. And for the record, he does this in the John Barrymore version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, not the original version. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's involved in Death of a Salesman, which is wildly known today, and really just lots of awards, lots of uh, of success. He later dies of prostate cancer at age 77 in Los Angeles, and he was buried at his estate in New Milford, Connecticut. And I can't find the year that he died, but I think it was pretty recent. He Uh,
1: died in the year 1975. So
0: that was not pretty recent. I but mean,
1: depending on, on how you're looking at it, it's decently recent.
0: But overall, the point of the story is really just a, I, I, I don't mean this in a negative way, a golden boy story. You know, if you look at American success, again, goes to college, goes to the military, comes back, immediate. well, not immediate success, he doesn't really, it's not a rags to riches story, but you can tell it's just an average American success story, but that doesn't take away from his talents. He's absolutely brilliantly talented, and he does a great job in uh, Nothing Sacred, but also plenty of other accolades to to tie his name to. And with that said, Brandon McCann, I think it's about time that you and I dive into this movie and sort of break it down.
1: Absolutely. So, like we said, this movie is just, I mean, laugh out loud, funny. From start to finish, it's really funny. And so it starts with, as John mentioned earlier, New York newspaper reporter Wally Cook, played by the incomparable Frederick March. He's blamed for reporting about a, a man that, you know, they know. His name's Ernest Walker as an, as an African nobleman hosting a charity event because it turns out that he's just like a shoe shiner. He's not actually an African nobleman. And You'll so, appreciate
0: this. <laughs> and I, I, I don't want to interrupt, but I, I do want to add. I'm watching the scene where they're explaining this African nobleman. He's going to give us all this money and we're going to build this big hall. And I paused the movie. I pulled out my notes, and I wrote, this sort of feels like one of those phone scam vibes. (laughs) Like, I'm getting real strong phone scam vibes from this. And immediately, as soon as I turn the movie back on, this woman comes in, and she looks at the African noble and she's like, yeah, it's my husband in a costume. And I was like,
1: oh, my God, I was right. (laughs) It's like a literal Nigerian print scheme, right? (laughs) But, yeah, so that lands Frederick March's uh, Wally Cook character in Hot Water. Um, he says that you know he didn't know that this was the case, but regardless, he is demoted to writing obituaries, which sounds like fun. <laughs> he ends up begging his boss, Oliver Stone, played by Walter Connolly, for another chance, you know, to prove himself to basically get this right. And he ends up finding this story of this girl named Hazel Flag who is dying supposedly of radium poisoning. His boss says, "All right, well, this, you know, basically this sounds like something we can we can make money off of." And so Cook ends up finding her in this small town. He goes to Warsaw, Vermont, um, to find her. And once he finds her, he comes in on her crying because her doctor told her that she isn't dying. But then in turn, because she realizes that because she is not dying, she might have to be stuck in this podunk Vermont town for the rest of her life.
0: Her doctor is terrible, by the way. Oh, he's awful. He's terrible. Uh, She comes in and she's like, well, Doc, like... I don't know. She's going in for her death checkup or whatever you want to call it. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what she's doing. Um, but she goes in to see him and he's just shaving his face. And he takes like 15 minutes in their conversation to tell her that he's, she's not dying. And I'm like, don't you think you should have led with that?
1: Right. Open with that. Please. <laughs> yeah, Exactly.
0: <laughs> uh, I also want to ask you a question. Cause we talked about our newspaper editor, uh, Oliver. I don't know how I feel about him. I'm curious what your thoughts are.
1: I think he's good at what he does, but in that, he is a terrible person. Because, like, never at any point during this movie do you get the feeling that he, like, really cares about, you know, Hazel Flagg or what happens to her. Because until the end, he believes she's dying. And the whole time, he's, like, even, even as Frederick March's character begins to kind of, you know, develop feelings for her and is like, well, maybe we shouldn't be like this. He's still like, no, get, you know, get that story. He's funny again in the screwball sense, but he's like a terrible person.
0: And it's interesting because, and I don't mean to make this like too serious because it's a very goofy movie, but like I, I learn a lot about journalism here at, at college and it's something that I uh, practice a lot. But I recently had a conversation yesterday in one of my classes where a professional from the, from the field came in and she was talking to us about how Okay, journalism is not the same anymore, and it's becoming very sensationalized, and there's no longer this authentic journalistic vibe uh, anymore. Nobody's just trying to get the facts anymore. Well, Obviously, facts, everyone's trying to get the facts. I'm not trying to discredit the media by any means. Um, But she's like, now the facts are who can get it out the quickest because the ones who get it out the quickest are the ones who make the money, right? And it's more about money anymore. Still, facts are heavily prominent. The media isn't lying to you. Uh, But with that being said, uh, in the 1930s, right, there was a very authentic style of journalism. It was like, we're going to tell the story. This is what we're going to do. It wasn't about making money. So I feel like in in the real 1930s, journalism, like if a journalist from the 1930s sat down and watched this movie, like, I think they would find it funny. But at the same time, they would be disgusted by all (laughs) of his practices. Yes. And I'm not sure whether I like him or hate him. I, I can't. I, I don't know. Because later on, like, sometimes he seems like a cool friend. Other times I'm like, oh, he's just the worst. He's just so mean.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Not sure how I felt about that character. But, yeah, I, I felt it was worthy of a discussion.
1: Right. So next we see after, you know, Wally kind of walks in on her and is talking to her. Obviously, at this point, he doesn't know that she's not dying. And she doesn't, you know, tell him that. So Wally invites Hazel and her doctor to New York as guests of his newspaper. It's basically like, hey, you know what? Everybody's really sad that you're dying, and we're going to make a really big deal out of it. She says, that sounds cool. And so they go.
0: They should have stayed there, except for for Wally. (laughs) Because here's the thing. I I was watching this, and again, going back to modern journalism. The whole time that they're in Warsaw, uh, I I kept thinking, man, the people in Warsaw— Treat Wally the same way that I think people in Warsaw now would treat real journalists. Uh, They're very. There's a point where I don't I I feel like I'm going to regret this comment, but I think it's a good (laughs) joke. Um, There's a point where Wally is bitten by a child because the child knows that he's a journalist and the whole town just hates journalists. So the child runs out of his house, bites him like on the back of the leg and then runs back into his house. I wrote this as a joke. I said, yeah, a well-trained MAGA boy would bite me, too.
1: You're not wrong, unfortunately. It's hilarious.
0: And then I, I also thought it was funny afterwards that, like, after he's bit by the child, that's when he finds his way to the doctor. And I'm like, yeah, I'd go to the doctor, too, after being bit by a random kid.
1: Fair point. Fair point.
0: Anyway, that's all I wanted to add. I, I, I thought I thought that whole series where he's just going around getting harassed by all these people is, is really funny. But I was also like... Yeah, I, I think this is also kind of
1: reasonable. <laughs> this hits deep right now. Yeah. <laughs> so the newspaper ends up, you know, using her story to kind of promote themselves, to increase their circulation, to make more money. Then there's this montage. I mean, it's not really a montage because it's like this like 30 minute sequence where you're seeing her going around the town and she gets this whole parade. She gets a key to the city. She's getting painted by people like it's absolutely insane. And as part of this, there's this big, like, banquet show that they put on this one night that, you know, she's invited to because she's the guest of honor. And it's this it's basically this, like, cabaret show of, oh, here are all these great women in history. And they come out on horses for some bizarre reason. And then they're like, oh, and the the other great woman of history, Hazel Flagg. And she is getting drunk this whole time because she knows she's not dying and people are just looking at her and crying and she's not having a good time. So she passes out and uh, that's when things start to go downhill.
0: This whole series of her just being honored by the city is a lot of fun. Um, and also her relationship growing with Wally at this time too is, is was really amusing for me to watch. Uh, there's a scene where they put out all this food for her, right? They put out this, like they're laying out a bunch of food and the camera doesn't show what the table underneath all the food reads. And it pans out and it's like something to the lines of cheese and bologna galore or something like that. <laughs> and I just thought that was a great joke because like, if you're not paying attention, you, you miss it. But it's like, yeah, this is a bunch of cheese and bologna. <laughs> good <laughs> so point. I, th- I thought that was a good joke. Uh, also, as they're uh, Wally takes her on a boat ride um, throughout the city and they're talking about love and, and Wally's thoughts on love. And he said, Oh, I could never do it. And she's like, why? And he's like, because I got past, like I, I was a journalist and I got past the point of 15 or 16. He's like, after 15 or 16, that's when you're either going to make it or you're going to break it. Cause you're either going to fall in love or you're going to be a journalist. And he says a line that says, Oh yeah. That, that young journalist is often prey to older waitresses. <laughs> and, uh,
1: has that been the case for you, John? No, that's what I was going to
0: say. I think <laughs> Wally's tossing some more cheese and baloney out there.
1: <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> so as, as we keep going, you know, like John mentioned, um, you know, Wally and Hazel are beginning to fall in love. And there is this incredibly funny and well-shot sequence. It's my favorite in the whole movie where Hazel decides, you know what? I need to fake my death and get out of here.
0: Again, I don't mean to interrupt you because I caught you (laughs) Uh, mid-sentence. They say they're bringing in this doctor, this radium doctor, um, because they're like, oh, well, you have. And originally she tells them, don't call in any more doctors. My disease is terminal. You know this. Like, I'd rather just live and, like, not have to worry about doctors, which is baloney. (laughs) Um, But. Wally breaks that promise, and he's like, look, we found this guy. He's the best radium poisoning doctor in the world. We're going to call him in, and he's going he's gonna to take care of you. So her immediate reaction is, okay, I have to fake my death. That way I'm not outed as, as, as a big old faker. But I think the real reason is because the doctor that they're calling in has the name Amel Egglehopper. Amel Egglehopper.
1: I wouldn't trust it.
0: That's such a bad name. That's
1: an awful name.
0: It's like, like, I don't know. It just makes me think of eggs. Yeah. And like, I don't know. If I had radium poisoning and I was like dying an and (laughs) eggle hopper comes in, I'm like, oh, this guy is not going to save me.
1: I'll just take the L at that point. Exactly.
0: So I think that's the real pushing point for her.
1: (laughs) Very fair. And she... (laughs) You know, it is like John said, she doesn't want to be outed as a faker. She at that point is aware of the fact that that will ruin Wally's career. She doesn't want to do that. And so she ends up deciding to fake her death. And it's I felt like bad whenever I wrote this down. But like even her like suicide note, her fake suicide note is funny. Like every part of this is funny. And she is basically saying to them, oh you know thank you guys so much for all your hospitality and the last line is there's only one thing left to enjoy your river and i think that's hilarious but what ends up happening is the guy that initially was posing at the african as the african prince way at the beginning finds this note calls wally says hey you know what this is what's about to happen so wally runs down to the dock uh it ends up finding her they both end up in the water he pulls her out she's saved and they finally they finally get together again this is my favorite scene in, in the whole movie because it's shot in such a beautiful way and the way that the camera moves like it's really it's really romantic but again very funny they end up behind this crate and all you can see are like their feet and you hear them talking, and then all of a sudden it gets really quiet, and you're like, oh, I know what's going on back there. And they, they pan the camera, and then there's this opening in the crates, and you see them just, like, sitting there, and they're talking, and then he's like, hey, you know what? I know you're dying, but let's get married. And so then they're just, like, thrilled. And again, it's this really, really, like, beautifully shot moment. And then this, I don't know why they're Swedish, but the Swedish fireman comes up, and he's like, hey, did you find her? And he says, yeah, and they come out and they ride away on this fire truck um, and, you know, leads to some more problems after that. But for the moment, everything seems nice.
0: This whole instant, because the plan, the plan is she's going to jump into the river and then her doctor, who she brings with her for no reason. I, I don't know why he comes because he hates New York and he <laughs> hates the journalists, but he just comes. I guess it's a free vacation. Yeah. I would probably go to. Yeah. But he goes along and he's like, all right, I'm going to row over to you. I'll grab you. We're going to get out of here. And she's like, cool, I'll be dead. No big deal. Um, but this whole scene confuses me because Wally finds her and he, like, runs up to her and then sort of, like, doesn't break fast enough and knocks her in. Yes. I, so, I don't know. And then she yells at him for pushing her in like he meant to do it <laughs> as if he was like yeah, I'm like, yeah, you ruined me. You're going in. <laughs> Because by this point, you didn't even know.
1: Right. He still doesn't know at this point.
0: Also, what's more romantic than being covered in polluted water and proposing to your fiancé in a crate?
1: Absolutely nothing. Especially when the moment is ruined by mysteriously Swedish firemen. It's perfect. Really couldn't have planned it better.
0: I I didn't know who, like, I didn't know what they were supposed to be.
1: Yeah, I just assumed Swedish Maybe maybe that was wrong.
0: I didn't know, and this was one of those points in the movie where I was like, "Oh, 1930s." <laughs> <laughs> but it's very—it's done in a very innocent way. But at the same time, I'm like, "Is this okay? I, am I am I amused right now?" I, I
1: will tell you, I'm <laughs> Swedish, and I wasn't offended by it.
0: But that's the thing—I was like, I don't know if they're Swedish or not.
1: <laughs> I just—it sounded like they were. Like it reminded me of the Swedish Chef from the Muppets, and so I just kind of extrapolated based on that. But that's it. I, I don't know. i have to do some research.
0: They're fun to watch. They're fun to watch. That's all there <laughs> is to it.
1: So after that, uh, you know, Hazel accepts the proposal. And, you know, Wally is really like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna save her. We're gonna find some doctors. And he brings in three independent doctors. Not not Emil Egelhofer this time. <laughs> and they find they're not really dying. And then everybody ends up finding this out which is bad for everybody, but what happens, again, is there's no moment of celebration of, oh my gosh, she's not dying. It's immediately Wally's career is going to be ruined. The the newspaper is going to look like idiots, all this and that and the other, and so they decide that they need to make her seem like she's sick. And so what happens is Wally comes back to, you know, like her hotel room or whatever that she's staying in. And basically he's like, we got to make it seem like you are under the weather. And their solution to that is to have a literal fist fight. And it is the single funniest thing I have ever seen.
0: This is crazy to me, this whole segment, because the the doctors tell the editor she's not actually dying. And the editor looks like he's about to explode. Um, Wally comes in. He yells at Wally. Then they get a phone call that she's dying from pneumonia and because she fell in the river. I think this is the funniest part of the whole movie. Because for a second, I know she's not dying from the start. And then as soon as like in the in the radium poisoning sense. And at this point I'm like, is this movie gonna take like a serious turn? Like is is this gonna be like a yeah, yeah, there are consequences to your actions kind of deal? <laughs> and I was like, man, that'd be crazy. So then I'm genuinely thinking I'm like, man, what if she's dying for real this time? And then Wally goes to see her, because the editor's like, yeah, if she's really dying this time, you, you should be by her side. And I was like, okay, that's like him being cool for once. Um, he goes in, and immediately he's like, stop faking it. I know you're faking it again. And it's so funny, because she's like, yeah, I'm faking it again. And I was like, just for a minute, I was worried. Like, I now I get why the people in New York are going to be so angry. During this fight, though, it's, it's funny to watch, but... I think the funniest part is that we later find out that the editor is in the room watching the whole time. Mm -hmm. And and then he comes out and he's like, Oh, you faked it again. (laughs) And, but man, like that fight is brutal. Like he, I mean, I think this is the, the only context acceptable where a man can just like throw a haymaker right, right in a woman's face. Like, (laughs)
1: Right. It's the only context
0: that's acceptable.
1: <laughs> that's that's the great thing about this movie. Is a lot of times, you know, I, I'm I'm a big person of of watch movies in the context in which they were made. Right. But sometimes, you know, it is hard if you're watching older movies. There are some things that don't hold up well in terms of of physical violence against women and things like that. But again, like you said, this is perhaps the only context where it works yeah, because it's, it is patently done for comedic effect.
0: I was like, oh, my God. But I was kind of amused. Like, I wasn't like – I wasn't upset about it because, like, obviously it's a movie. Right. But, um, but, yeah, like, there are some things in the movie that aren't kind of, like, cool. But yeah. uh, also I, I want to acknowledge this while we're sort of on. It's a product of its time. I think that the romantic dialogue in this movie is so funny. It's so over the top. Like – it's just like he comes in. and He's like, I don't know. He's just like, oh, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna hit you because I love you. <laughs> and like, <laughs> and like, you're never once like, no, nah, yeah. He, I don't think anyone ever said that ever. Well, yeah, someone probably said that ever. But you, you know what I mean? Like in in the cheesier lines. You know right, what I mean? Right. Where it's a little more apparent. Like, uh, I I can't remember the specifics because they really are so absurd. Right. Um, but it's it's just fun. It's fun like, no one says that, but you know what? Watching this, I, it feels like they said it all the time. Well,
1: exactly. Like, it feels so natural coming out of Frederick March's mouth to say something that weird. And you're, like, watching it, and you're like, wow, you know what? That's a nice thing for a man to say to you. But, like, it's not in real life. Just remember that, <laughs> Just remember that, ladies. Unless he's Frederick March, in which case he'd be a rotting skeleton. Don't accept that from anybody.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> How romantic. <laughs> I love it when you're non-existent eyes gaze into (laughs) mine romantically
1: fair enough yeah that's a good pickup line frederick
0: march you dead stud (laughs) anyway we should continue that's right
1: i'm doing this summary i'm still thinking about i want to take over if you want you know what yeah you know what you want to wrap out the movie yeah so distracted by skeletal (laughs) frederick march
0: as i mentioned the editor comes out and he's like ah i knew you guys were faking it and uh the the newspaper man, Oh, jeez, Wally, Ollie and Wally. I'm mean, you can you, you see how I showed up there. Uh, Wally's like, yeah, we're faking it. And he's like, well, you like at least make it look good. Like if we're doing this, we're doing it. And uh, man, I can't remember her name. What's her name now?
1: Hazel. Hazel.
0: There we go. Hazel gets up and uh, she looks at uh, at Wally and she's like, meh, I'm just gonna punch him now. And she she decks him right. She decks him and. The doctors... Well, I don't know if the doctors come back in. No, Hazel's just like, Nah, I'm done. I feel bad. This makes me feel bad. His career's messed up. You're kind of slimy, Ollie, for letting this go on, like, even though we, you know I'm thinking it now. And she just goes out, and she's like, Hey, I'm not dying. And she tells everyone. And then there are all these people who are like, Wait a second. You have to be dying, because if you're not dying, my life sucks. There's a soldier who's like, yeah, like, I got promoted. A oh, Woman soldier, she's like, I got promoted because, you know, we sort of have, like, a love for, for our dying sweethearts right now. And, you know, kind of very similar to women in, uh, in the military at the time. I think I want to say it's the military, right? It's some I sort of organization very like similar that. to the military. Yeah. Um, and she's like if, like, if it's not for you, like, and you're, you're a big picture, if you're a scam, then, like, what's going to happen to me? And everyone sort of has this, this tossing back and forth with her. They're like, wait a second, you have to be dying and she's like, well, I don't know, then I guess I'll just uh, disappear. That's what they do. They just disappear, and she writes a letter to New York saying, yeah, I just went back to Warsaw to live out the rest of my days on my own. Thank you. Toodaloo. Have a good time. And what I thought was really interesting here, and again, this movie's very lighthearted. It doesn't take a whole lot of, like, bold stances. It's not trying to say anything huge, but there are a couple times where it does kind of say some stuff that really stands out, and Frederick March says something along the lines of, yeah you know like new york was already sort of starting to forget about you is the story like and she's like well how it was the biggest story there and he's like it's just how new york is just how the cities are it's how the times are and she's like well i'm afraid no one's gonna forget me and he's just like ah don't worry about it and uh they they just sort of sail off into the sunset together they're um they're they're having a good time they, they, it looks like everything turns out well they're arguing the whole time but you know what it seems like that's what's fueling their relationship right
1: yeah that's a great point that that's you know that's kind of what the movie leaves you with like this movie's hilarious but it's very dark and in the sense that it comes out with that message of people will care but for what they can get out of it or for the way they can posture about it and so by the end whenever he's like they'll find somebody else like you know that that's the message and it kind of forces us to look at our own society and be like well he's right (laughs) which is kind of
0: sucky. I don't know. I think sometimes the best time, the best way to commentate is through cynical comedy like this. Because, you know, we looked last week when we were talking about Godzilla. Godzilla was a bummer. Godzilla was very entertaining. It was really good to watch. And personally, I think it's one of my favorite movies looking back on it now and knowing what I learned about it and everything like that. But even at the end of the episode, as you and I were talking about, I was like, man, this is a bummer. Like, I don't know what to do with this one. Uh, with this movie, I don't feel that way. You know what I mean? And I also still took something away from it. You know, I, as, as a journalist, I took away journalistic themes. I took away this idea of, you know, personal gain and all that. Uh, but I had fun along the way. And I think that, like I said, well, I don't think it's trying to say anything heavy. I don't think it inherently is going out of its way to spell that out for us. I think someone just wanted to tell a comedic story with two of the best actors in the Hollywood at the time. They did a good job. And I can't complain. I can't complain at all.
1: I definitely agree. You know, as we kind of wrap this out here... Like we talked about at the beginning, this is a personal favorite of mine, and the screwball comedy genre is something that is so fascinating because of the way that you know comedy is, is used to kind of comment on some of these things. And Nothing Sacred, again, it being one of, in my opinion, William Wellman's best movies, it really comments upon society in a way that can sometimes just be under the surface. Like the first time I watched it, I didn't pick up on a lot of these things but once you look at it you're like this is this is funny but like laughing in an uncomfortable kind of way because it does it says a lot about us but it's told in such a a visually incredible package again because this is 1937 it's shot in technicolor which at the time was not common practice like everything about it is so pretty for saying such a kind of Sad thing.
0: Wait, that's huge, actually. I didn't even think about that.
1: Yeah, I forgot to mention that. Like, we
0: did Strangers on a Train a few <laughs> weeks back, and that was in the 50s, and it was still black and white. Right. That's
1: huge. Yeah. Wow. This, this is... Technicolor wasn't commonly used yet at this point, but it's interesting because in 1937, you have two William Wellman movies with Frederick March that use Technicolor, A <laughs> uh, Star is Born being the other one. But, yeah, Technicolor doesn't really become more of like a standard per se. Until Gone with the Wind wins Best Picture in 1939. You know, really pioneers that. And you have Wizard of Oz in that same year as well. Uh, but this is really kind of the beginning of, of using color and on a, on a more widespread scale. Like there was color tinting in the silent era, stuff like that. I don't want to make myself sound like an idiot there. <laughs> but yeah, it, it really, that adds so much to this movie. And I love that.
0: Absolutely. And I didn't even realize that. So thank you for the, the cinematic history lesson <laughs> and thank you for showing me uh, showing me nothing nothing sacred. Absolutely. Uh, if you would like to check out the movie we will include it in the description for this week's episode and we just want to say thank you for listening and we will see you next week.